is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast, where we take an insider's look into the training and racing of some of America's best runners as they prepare for the Olympic Trials, and we made it. This is our last recap episode of the marathoners that we were following all year long. This one is with Jared Ward. A lot of people were looking forward to this. Jared was a uh, almost a unanimous favorite to make the team. Not that he would necessarily win the trials, but a lot of people viewed him as the safest bet to make the Olympic team. So his performance and what resulted uh, in Atlanta was not quite what anybody had in mind, least of all him. So this episode was one where a lot of people were looking forward to hearing from Jared exactly what happened, and Jared did not disappoint with his usual candor and introspection. He is such a special guy, and it's been a pleasure getting to know him throughout the year. And as you'll hear, he tells exactly what happened on that day and leading up to that day and why you know, things progress the way they did. So with all that being said, again, this is our last episode with the Marathoners. So we have a special episode coming next week with Julia Conan, who did very well on the women's side, finishing the top 10. That was a really fun episode to do. Thank you, Julia, for hopping on. On uh, Thursday of this week, we're going to have a special guest, Diljeet Taylor, is coming on. She is a uh, one of the head coaches at BYU she has done a fantastic job there, one of the best programs in the country, and she is such a special coach. We're talking about what's going on with the coronavirus in terms of its impact on her, her team, the winter season, the spring season, and recruiting, uh, kind of the insider's look into the coaching side of things. We normally take the insider's look into the running side from the athlete's perspective. So I was excited to hear from a coach and get exactly what's going on in her world as well. And in two weeks, we're going to launch season two of Road to the Olympic Trials for the track trials. So we're just finishing up the roster now. We're almost there, finishing up that last, I shouldn't say we're, we're done. The roster's completed. I'm not going to, there's no reason to uh, to put drama into it because I'm not telling you who's on the show anyway. But no, the roster is set. We're ready to roll. And it's going to be a very interesting build for a lot of people, if for no other reason than with the virus going around. No one's sure about the timeline for anything any race in the buildup, nor the Olympic trials themselves, or even the Olympics. So it's going to be a very strange Olympic year for our track athletes, and we're going to follow them every step of the way. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jared Ward. Jared, welcome back to the show in your final episode here on the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast. Hey, thanks, Matt. It's good to be back on. Well, first of all, you're a trooper. I appreciate you doing this. I think it's 6.30 a.m. your time, and here you are doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess first things first, I know a lot of people are excited to hear about you know what your experience like was on race day. Before we get into it, um, what was post-race day like for you? I know it seemed like you went on a short trip with your family right afterwards. What was, what was that experience like, and what did you guys do? Yeah, we, I had family all around me and I was really blessed, uh, I think right after the race and the next day to have so much, uh, so much family right there in Atlanta, um, good support. And, uh, and then me and my kids and mom and dad and aunt and uncle took off on a cruise across the Gulf of Mexico, uh, to a couple stops in Mexico and spent some good family time. So it was fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. Obviously, 
kind of a tough time to be taking cruises. How much of the, you know, the the, the coronavirus and COVID nineteen was kind of running through your head as you were out there on that trip? You know, not a lot early on, but by about halfway through the cruise, um, hearing about what was happening off the coast of California and uh, a few of those things, I started to hope that we would get off the ship. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been crazy. You know, it's it's crazy to think that, you know, if, if uh, coronavirus had been two or three weeks ahead of what it is right now. I mean, we may have not held the Olympic trials. So, um, so grateful we got through that for, for the experiences of so many. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the marathon is one of those kinds of races where, you know, certainly they might've just like said something like, all right, no spectators. Cause there was, as you, as you know, and we can talk about later, you know, there were so many there to watch the race. Um, but also, you know, it's not like you guys were running like the 400 meters where you know, athletes can, can go the whole race without touching each other. And hopefully they don't touch each other because then they'll be disqualified. And you guys were in a tight formation, especially early on in the race. And that would pre- that would present a whole a whole different set of challenges. Yeah. Yeah. I really uh, feeling grateful that we got through that. All right. So we did a um, a pre-race chat, you know, you know, a couple weeks out from the race, a little over a month before the race. And you were feeling good. Um, take me through the, basically through your taper, you know, once you'd finished the, the high point of your training and you're starting to get, you know, really amped up for the race and you're really fine tuned, how were you feeling physically, mentally, and emotionally in those last two weeks prior to Atlanta? You know, pretty good. I, my taper is, um, maybe more significant than, uh, than what's, conventional these days but i would say it's it's very in line with what research says for um for endurance athlete taper and so three weeks out we're down to about 90 percent volume two weeks out 70 percent, and then the week of more like 30 percent going into the race and so um certainly a significant taper i was feeling good i mean in fact during the warm-up i remember thinking man i just have so much pop in my legs and um and would say early in the race you know i really felt pretty good um emotionally it, it was interesting i felt like uh, a week and a half before the race i s- was starting to feel the pressure of the race and that was new to me um but i felt blessed that once we got to race week and I was getting ready to get on a plane and traveling out and, and more into a pre-race routine. Then those nerves kind of went away. And on the start line and the day before, I was really feeling pretty good. And so, you know, everything on paper, um, you know, seemed to feel pretty good about the race. And the result wasn't what I was hoping for. Um, but, uh, but in terms of you know, we can get into the race a little bit too, but in terms of pre-race and taper and start line and everything, um, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think I would change anything. I think if, uh, if we were to rerun this race, uh, I would, I would approach it with the same taper and, um, and hope to be feeling the same on the start line. In terms of uh, expectations and, you know, kind of feeling the, the stress associated with uh, you know, going into the race and being one of the favorites, that sort of feeling that you just kind of talked about, you know, a week and a half out 
have you experienced that prior to other races, you know, say world marathon majors or the trials in 2016 or anything along those lines? You know, yes. Um, but I would say that it was, uh, it was unique in terms of having any of those feelings recently, I guess, you know, I have to rewind the clock back to probably college to remember having felt that kind of, uh, anxiety, if you will, before, uh, before some races in college. And so, you know, the, I think part of it is just time and repetition and, um, race after race that makes this world of pre-race nerves a little bit more routine. And, um, and so it stands out a little bit less. And so, so yeah, it, it was a little bit different than what I felt even in 2016. Um, when I was going in very much as an underdog and, and I thought I had a chance, but I certainly didn't feel like I had to do anything. Um, that was a little different and, you know, and I, I tried to pinpoint exactly what, uh, what caused, you know, an increase in stress. And I really think it was me, um, when I, when I got into race week and was focusing on what I was doing and controlling me before a race and really just focused on doing me, that brought the ball back into my court. And I think that's when the anxiety actually started to drop. And, and when I was back into kind of a pattern of competition that I'm used to and, and, and I was controlling things. And I think what I was feeling the week before is realizing, um, you know, I, I had a lot of support and a lot of friends and family that were watching and a lot of, um, certainly a lot of local support here. And I think what I was starting to feel were the hopes and expectations of everybody around me. And that can be empowering, but, um, but it can also be crippling. And I think it wasn't until, um, I got in my, you know, to my own focus a little bit and, and stopped worrying about all of those around me that I was able to get back into what felt like a more regular, uh, pre-race feelings and pre-race routine. And so I, it's something I've gotten better at over the years, uh, not worrying about what anyone else is thinking or saying or hoping and just doing me. Uh, but the, uh, the trials this year brought out a new, uh, I guess a new level of that, that, uh, that I had to reconcile. And oftentimes, you know, when you have that, you know, as I say that the universal, you, you have that experience where, you know, you're trying to manage the things that you can manage. Another way of kind of getting out of that, that realm of other people's expectations is, is helping others. And I know that you've been very open about, you know, how you've, you know, you've been, you know, kind of a, you know, a nice little team with your training partner, Connor McMillan. Uh, and you were certainly a team in this race in many respects. What was it like for you? you know, helping this person who you've, you know, obviously grown, um, a large amount of fondness for, um, you have a great, uh, history with Connor. He's an up and comer who's really doing amazing things. What was your relationship with him? Not only leading up to the race, but even like the weekend of the race and helping him, um, how did that manifest itself and how did it affect you mentally and emotionally? You know, you're totally right. And having, uh, having an uh, an avenue to channel energy into and focus on helping someone else takes pressure off of yourself. And, um, and that, uh, that was a good feeling. And, and, you know, I was thinking with Connor in the race that we we're going to be next to each other and, um, and had told him, 
before the race when he was talking about uh, race plans of really just staying with me and trying to hang on to me. And, and I said, that's perfect. You know, I want you right there. And, and um, you know, as I, as I played the race through in my mind, I always played it through with Connor right on my back when moves were being made and, and uh, him hanging on. Uh, until late in the race, if not all the way until the finish line. And, uh, and it brought a certain level of um, regularity to the race when I would see Connor. You know, he was right next to me, right off my shoulder, right behind me, right in front of me. And, um, I, you know, when I would see him or hear him uh, or say something to him, it, uh, it kind of brought things uh, brought things back into perspective and, and felt, you know, similar as similar as running in a pack of 40 with your training partner can be, but it brought things similar to, to what it felt like training in Provo. All right. So let's talk about the beginning of the race. As I've talked about many times in this podcast over the last three weeks, the women's race, and the men's race were basically exact opposites in many ways. Uh, in, in your race, for people who may not remember, there was, you know, an early lead out um, by Schneider, who really, you know, put distance on the group, and that kind of basically made people make choices about how they wanted to progress in the first ten miles or so with him out there. You know, a well-established runner, but maybe not somebody who people would expect to be uh, someone who, you know, basically make the top three or top five or even top ten. So, in the beginning, what was it like for you determining? Um, what to do in relation to his moves and then trying to figure off who to key off of in the main group. Well, yeah, we, uh, I mean, we saw a race in terms of men's and women's contrast and comparison. We saw two opposite races. And I would say that the, the consensus pre-race would have been that the races would have been, the races would have been reversed, that the women's would have been a more assertive race from the gun uh, stringing, you know, paces hard enough to string out in the pack by halfway, and that the, it would have been the men's race that was a little bit more tactical. So it it was surprising. I I didn't expect it to go that fast, and certainly even, um, you know, I remember Tyler running next to Tyler Pinnell halfway through the race as we went through the half marathon, and he said something like, "This is unbelievable." Thirty guys running two eleven flat pace on this course. And, um, and that kind of became the, at least the, you know, that was the sentiment that I was feeling, you know, even before halfway when Brian's out in front or, you know, even Luke early on, uh, out in front and our pack or the pack that I was running in, you know, wasn't, wasn't covering those moves and really was kind of, um, I would even say bungeeing off the back of of this chase pack. Um, so, so not even covering really mini surges from other people in the pack. And I just kept looking at my watch and thinking, we can't run this pace for the entire race. And, and it was a little bit empowering, I guess, early on, I thought that I was really well prepared for the race and, um, that I would be prepared for, uh, a more honest race. I thought maybe more so than, than some of the other guys in the race and so I kept thinking well just stay really really relaxed try to stay at the back end of this pace um because we're going fast enough and and that's what I kept telling myself but 
you know, early miles, uh, first loop through through the Atlanta course, I felt really good. And I thought, hey, I'm in the right position. I'm in the right rhythm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, these guys are going to begin to fade over this next loop. And I think, um, I think that may have been, uh, you know, I guess that was a tough reality when, you know, we start getting towards the end of that second loop and I started thinking, Hey, guys aren't fading, but my legs are getting tired. <laughs> and you mentioned the pace and you're being around two eleven pace for you. In terms of marathon effort, which obviously is, you know, can be a different thing, especially on a course like that, what did that marathon effort feel like at the 211 pace? Well, Coach and I, before the race, had felt like the Atlanta course was maybe three minutes slow from a, from a flat, fast Berlin or a windless Chicago or something like that. Um, but then it was windy, too. Like, I, you know, I was... I was uh, really surprised by how strong some of the winds felt in certain sections going through weaving through the city and uh, on a looped course you get the tailwind for every headwind but I think um, there's probably a net loss there and so I don't know I would say the course with the wind especially was was at least three minutes slow and so I mean, it felt fast. It felt it felt really fast. And when we hit those long downhill sections, um, we were going, you know, two oh seven pace uh, for for a chunk of it. And then you'd hit the uphill sections, and and we'd be going two twelve or two thirteen pace. But it didn't feel like it because they were they were tough uphill sections. And so it uh, it felt fast. And I think that was you know really this race felt more similar to like Rio in 2016 than any other race I'd been in since in that there was just such a quality caliber of field. And, you know, in Rio, I remember thinking we're running five minute pace and there's 50 people around me. And it was just, you know, it wasn't unusual to be running five minute pace, mile pace in a marathon, but it was unusual to be running five minute mile pace in such a massive pack. And that, that was the feeling that I felt in the trials was it's not, you know, it's not crazy to be running these types of marathon paces. I, I thought, hey, I think I'm ready for this. Um, that was about the edge of where I would say I was, I was ready for. But what I didn't expect was to have 20, 30, 40 guys around me running those paces. Yeah, and I think that's the discrepancy that I'd love to flesh out here. So, is it would be one thing if you were running that course by yourself, and you're like, wow, like this is challenging, this course feels slow, and I'm really busting my butt just to hold on to 11 pace. And yet, here you are in this race, and you're seeing other runners who you've competed against and with so many times, you know, right with you in this huge group. So what was that like for you in terms of, juxtaposing those two realities of like, wow, this feels a lot harder than it should right now, but yet everyone's still here and they seem to be managing it. Yeah, that's, that's a tough, it's a tough thing to reconcile. And, you know, I, I, you have to, you have to try to figure out how to turn it back to yourself and not worry as much about the other guys around you i mean it's a game every that gets into everyone's mind but um if you can try to remember that the guy next to you is probably 
feeling similar to you and uh, maybe there's a couple guys that are feeling better but there's probably a couple guys feeling worse and you know you can you can say hey you know I'm probably try to talk yourself through it but but you know the the thing that I found the most helpful is just continuing to try to manage myself and and so you know when we go through halfway and we're wrapping out the rest of that loop I'm saying to myself okay what pace am I running what pace is that going to put me at the finish line and do I you know it, as an odds guy and even you know late in the second loop when when uh there was a break in the pack and um and some guys uh stretching out the uh kind of the the chase pack there around miles 14 or 15 i felt comfortable where i was at based on the paces i was running and so it's kind of a you know i'm playing a an odds game in my mind based on you know, balancing how I'm feeling and what the reality of the pace is that these guys are running. And so at that point, I thought, well, I'm going the right pace. I don't feel great right now. My legs were starting to feel heavy. I think the the pounding of the hills um, and the, the undulating nature of the course were getting to me. But I thought, I'm going the right pace and I uh, I just need to stay where I'm at with this pace and it has, you know, good odds of, of resulting well by the end, if I can manage this for another 10 miles. So what was the interplay between you and Connor in the last 10 K? Obviously you guys finished together. Was that just a matter of, you know, happenstance? You just happened to be similar that day. Was he trying to stick with you? Were you trying to stick with him? Were you working together in a different manner? What did, what was that interplay like? Well, so you know, I, we had both been pushing with this pack um, through miles sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen downhill, and then turning around, coming back uphill. I think Connor probably fell off the the back a little before I did, but I was I was not really in a better position um, physically. I think I was just uh, hanging on a little longer. I remember nearly turning to Tyler Pinnell, who I was running next to, and, and Jake Riley, who was right there, and saying, you know, someone from this pack is going to make the team if we can, if, if we can continue this pace. Um, but, I, but I was feeling at that point that an honest confession would be it's probably not going to be me um, because I've already been just trying to hang on for the last few miles. And so, I, you know, going back up the hill, I dug down for a couple more miles as Jake was beginning to pull away and Tyler as well at, at one point. And, um, and then just thought, you know, I think this is, I think the writing's on the wall for me. I don't think, um, I don't think I have a chance at finishing in the top three. And I'd been treating, um, just a bruise on the bottom of my foot for the last few weeks. And it, it didn't affect me uh, I, I didn't lose much training for it and I don't think it affected the outcome of the race in terms of, um, you know, me not being there right at the end. But when I knew the die was cast on the likelihood of me making an Olympic team with, with guys pulling away and with how many guys were in front, me not being able to make, you know, continue to sustain that pace with Jake and Tyler and some of these guys moving forward. I, uh, I 
pulled the plug and thought, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do any more damage to my foot, but, but I do want to finish this race. My kids are at the finish line and, and I, I want them to know that to dad, it's important to finish things and it's important to, uh, to run tough even when things are hard and it's okay for things to be hard, but, but that we try to respond positively. And, and I was really thinking of my kids, you know, with five miles to go and, and hearing the streets of Atlanta and, you know, the people, um, the people on the street were yelling at me and yelling for me. And, uh, and I thought, you know, this is, this is about a little bit more than me today. And, um, and I'm going to try to do things, uh, the right way, even though, you know, even mid race, I'm disappointed. And, and somewhere in that, in that period, Connor passes me. And I, I said something to him about just, Hey, keep chasing it. Keep going, keep moving up. Um, you look smooth. Um, but then it was about a mile later that I could see him up ahead and knew that he was, he was not pulling away anymore. Uh, he, that he had, he had sort of, uh, popped or pulled the plug or whatever at probably 22 miles. And so I, uh, I resolved to picking up the pace a little bit to get up next to him and, and pulled up next to Connor. And I just said, Hey, uh, should we finish this thing? How this training cycle started? And he said, yeah, let's do it. And, and we, you know, we had some little bit of chatter in the race, you know, Hey, uh, we'll have to pick a fun fall marathon or, you know, it'll be fun to get back and do some speed on the track and, you know, kind of little small tuck, but I think both of us were feeling the same thing. You know, we were feeling uh, disappointment for having not uh, had the day come together how we had hoped. Uh, we were questioning, you know, training and things that we had done and, and felt maybe we weren't, we weren't totally prepared for how difficult that course was. Um, but, you know, in, you know, in hindsight, I was, you know, I was treating a, a bruise on my foot. I was already on the, the brink of injury, certainly. And um, I don't know that I, I, you know, even even at that, you know, recognizing that maybe we were a little unprepared for the hills of the course, I don't know that I would have done much differently in training. Um, because I was already on the edge and we were, we were working on hills and, and, uh, pushing volume and intensity and, and all these things. And so, um, I, you know, I think there was some reflection you know, we were able to kind of get some of that out before hitting the finish line, um, because we were running at a, a sub maximal pace for that point in the race. And, um, and it was good, you know, I think that's going to be something that I remember for uh, for my whole life, you know, this, this moment in the running career where the Olympic trials was, um, not what I expected and, and is, uh, has been tough to reconcile emotionally, but I was, uh, able to be in an incredible race with a massive pack of, uh, American marathoners that are moving up in terms of, uh, where we're competing on a world stage and where we're measuring up and, and to be able to finish the race right next to Connor and, uh, share that experience with him. You know, I hope, I hope there's more Olympic trials experiences with Connor. Um, but to share that with him was, was cool. And, uh, and, and that's something that I'll remember.
You mentioned the last five miles, the race became more than just about you and your performance and, you know, the relationship with your kids and them being there. So after the race and you're talking with them about your performance and your race and how things went, what were some of the things that you discussed with them and what were the things that you stressed with them? You know, uh, I remember my, uh, my son, you know, he's, so my son's seven and then daughters are five, three and one. And, uh, and I talked about how, Hey, it was hard, but, um, but I decided that I could do it even though it was hard. And, and I think some of that resonated with the, with the younger kids, but I think, I think Paul was processing the race, um, as a seven turning eight later this month, uh, year old, um, at a little, a little, I guess, deeper of a level. And, and I remember in the hotel room hours after the race, he said something like, ah, dad, this is tough. I, I really wanted to go to Tokyo. And, and I said, yeah, I did too, son. And, and Paul said, you know, and I, I wanted to tell my friends that you were going to the Olympics. And, and I said, you know, that's a tough thing. And, um, but, but try to reiterate that the important things are what we do and what we can control and our effort. And, um, you know, he was, he was, uh, beginning to reconcile the same things that my wife and I were going to be doing and have been doing for the two weeks since when, when, uh, talking about life plans and trajectory and, um, expectations and, uh, you know, talking with friend after friend after friend and family member and, and rehacking. Yeah. You know, we had hoped for a different outcome and it just, you know, just wasn't in the cards and, um, and that's tough. You know, the, uh, the, the rift between expectations and reality really sets a tone for, how we feel about things and expectations were high for this race. And, um, and it was interesting to see even my seven year old son in, in his, uh, narrow world, uh, going through some of those same things, uh, as, as he was hopeful for something for his dad, you know, even early in the morning, I, I came back from breakfast, at probably 8:30 a.m. before the race and and slid back into the room and everyone was still asleep and and so I found a chair and was just on my phone messaging a couple of people that had wished me good luck and letting them know that I felt good and was excited to race and he pokes his head up from the bed and says dad you got to get some sleep you have a big race tomorrow and uh <laughs> you know it was 8:30 in the morning and and he was up shortly after that but but I you know e- even in the morning I thought Paul cares about this and he, um, he cares about it for him certainly. And, uh, and for me as well. And, um, and so, you know, it's fun for that experience to come full circle. And I think sometimes we learn more from, from the, uh, the experiences in which we fail than from the ones in which we have success. And, uh, sometimes the failed experiences, are the ashes that uh, that new success is born from, and, and some of that comes because of the the new resolve and fire that, um, in my experience, that I've had because 
things didn't go how I wanted to. And so I want to do everything I can to give myself the chance to have the success I want the next time. And so, you know, I'm hoping that uh, in the long run, this can be a success story with my kids as, uh, as we all learn as a family that setbacks don't mean that the, that uh, the journey ends. They, uh, they just means that it just means that the journey takes a turn. And, um, and so I, I hope that the, the learning and this experience with, with my kids and with others too, you know, I was feeling the love on the the streets of Atlanta and, and the support from, from, from friends and fans and followers. And, um, and I hope to, to be able to take everyone on this journey and, and certainly have felt a fire to, to come back and, um, you know, have success on the back end. Thank you for sharing that anecdote about your family. And I love the, 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 the Phoenix metaphor that you created as well. I know a lot of parents can, uh, can certainly connect with that. And we actually had another guest here on the show, Sarah Bishop, who spoke very emotionally about that exact same topic with her, with her four children um, that, that race weekend. This is someone who is a very competitive, very type A alpha person. And, you know, for her, it was, it was an emotional experience having that, that connection with their kids who were expressing, you know, basically communicating with her for the first time, how, how, about how she's doing in her sport is affecting them, you know, in some sort of tangible way. And I know that can be a hallmark moment for a lot of parents when they experience that. So you just mentioned, you know, coming from the ashes and, and building things up again. With that said, you have been very consistent and have succeeded over and over again in a variety of ways over the years. So with this experience maybe being a little bit more novel for you, at least in the, in the, short, in the short term, what tips do you have for people? And this is coming from listeners. They, they submitted some questions here. What tips do you have for getting over a race where you fall short? Well, you know, I was talking with uh, Des Linden last night, and um, on a video call with the uh, with the team that we co coach, and someone had asked a question just like this, and I was listening to her answer and talking with her a little bit, and she she said, "I normally give myself forty eight hours to be sad about it, to be frustrated with it, to be mad at it, to analyze the race over and over, to replay." things that I did well and mistakes that I made in the race. Um, and then I tell myself, okay, it's uh, in the past and I let go of it emotionally. And that was good for me to hear because, you know, I'm, I'm now, you know, two weeks almost from the race and I have not let go of the race emotionally. And so I think to hear Des talk about her approach uh, kind of gave me the, uh, the motivation to, to try to finish my emotional, you know, purge over the last, you know, over today and tomorrow and then be done with it. And, um, but I think that that aspect is important. And, you know, my approach has always been, and, you know, in this race, this race has been different in that there was so much, um, so much keyed towards it, so much stock put into it. And, um, I think it's almost been harder to get through because I've avoided thinking about it. I, 
I still, um, you know, just, well, just until yesterday, I wasn't looking at pictures from the Olympic trials. I wasn't reading articles on the Olympic trials. I had sent some congratulations to, to, uh, to people that had run really well that, that I have been so excited for. And, and that was real excitement for them. And I could be excited for them, but I couldn't process the race because of what it was and is for me. And so I think part of my uh, struggle this time has been avoiding thinking about the race. And I think, um, you know, in some ways, maybe that was a blessing. I went on a trip with my family. I was able to just kind of enjoy time without thinking about it. But in some ways, I think maybe I did myself a disservice by just not digging in, processing it, having all the feels and then letting it go. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. But I think it's important to learn from, from races, whether they go well or whether they don't. And, um, the, the way that I've come to peace with goal setting is, um, is making it out to be that the goal is what gets me out of bed in the morning and gets me excited. And, and the, the best gauge of the right goal is what gets me excited without being so, um, I don't know, so far out there that I'm anxious about it. Right. And so my, my feeling, my heart tells me what the right goal is. And if I say a goal and it makes me nervous, then, then I need to rein it in. And if I say, you know, say a goal to myself in the mirror and that doesn't get me excited, then I need to, then I need to inflate it. And the goal of making the Olympic team was the right goal. And it got me excited and it got me out of bed. Now, the three guys that made the team ran an incredible race. And when I look at their race objectively on paper, I know that that would have taken a 100% day for me to be there and to have a chance. And there were four of them there, um, you know, that, I mean, Galen out in front and then three other guys that finished right next to each other. And I think just to be in the mix with those guys would have taken um, a really really a perfect day for me. And so, um, but, but that doesn't mean that my goal was the wrong goal. I think my goal was still the right goal because it was exciting to me. It got me out of bed. But, um, when that's the approach for goal setting on the back end, I can't only evaluate my success or failure based on whether or not I achieved the goal. And I think that's, for me, that's been the trick. And so what I try to do is look at the race from things that I could control. Now, I can't control how fast Galen runs. I can't control um, how fast surges are in the middle of the race or how fast Jake or Abdi or Lenny run. But what I can control is what I did early on in the race in terms of managing myself when the pace was fast, putting myself back in the pack, tucked in, protected from the wind and relaxing for the first loop and getting one loop out of the way uh, without thinking about it. And I can give myself credit for the miles from 14, 15, 16, all the way up to 19, 20, 21, when I fought one mile at a time to stay in it. And on the grindy, hard uphills, I trusted that on the downhill, my legs had come back under me. And so there are some things like that, that I can look at the race and say, you know what, I ran a good race. And, and I kept myself in the race, you know, two and three and maybe four miles longer than um, what I felt like my body was saying at those paces and what my, how my quads were feeling. And so 
how I get over it is still a work in process, but, um, and in progress, I guess. But I, uh, I think analyzing the race, picking a few things that I did well, hopefully give me an opportunity to gain some confidence going forward from a race that if I only looked at the result of the race could crush my confidence. And so, um, so finding those things that I can control and that I did control and giving myself credit for things I did well, uh, fuel that, that fire going forward. And, and that's what I'm going to be trying to do over the next few days and few weeks. All right. That's the perfect segue into our final question. What's next for you? <laughs> well, that depends on uh, what coronavirus decides to do this uh, summer and over the next year. Um, I mean, we're seeing races canceling uh, week after week. And, um, and so in the short run, it's going to be me uh, figuring out how to stay motivated and excited, even if training is just for the sake of training and, and there's not anything on my calendar. Um, in the, in the mid range run, I hope to have a bunch of, uh, you know, half, half marathon or shorter, uh, races in the next, you know, few months. And I hope that the, the late spring and summer and early fall are filled with, uh, with these other races. I think, you know, I, when I look at this last marathon build and consider that, you know, we were talking in Houston a few weeks ago. Um, and I, I PR in the half marathon in Houston in a race that I was not keying for and in a half marathon that I really wasn't racing, racing. I was, I was using it as a tune up opportunity. And so I, I got really, really fit this last build. And, um, and that's a tough thing when the whole build is towards one race that doesn't go as hoped. And so what I hope is that I can carry some of this fitness forward and um and have a chance to run a few races and um and utilize this fitness that uh that I've gained and so that's that's kind of the mid run in the long run I want to run uh more marathons and so I expect that um that as I get my legs back under me and get communicating with coach that we'll find something some goal that I'm interested in chasing whether that's a time in the marathon or a podium finish um, at a marathon that I'm excited about or, or something like that. And we'll begin to have some conversations and, um, nail down a fall marathon. Um, but also the world championships in 2021 are in Eugene and that could be a, a fun opportunity, um, for, uh, for, you know, an Olympics like experience, um, on the world stage. And, uh, and that's something that's in the back of my mind too. So, you know, the, the beautiful thing about running is when one door closes, four open. There's always another race, uh, assuming coronavirus kind of, we, we get over this. But, uh, um, but yeah, you know, there's, there's lots to look forward to and, and hopefully some exciting things in the future. Jared, thank you so much for letting us be a part of all the things that you've been doing over the past nine months. It's been an absolute pleasure learning more about you, seeing your progress, your successes how things maybe haven't gone your way and learn from them. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for being part of this project. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate you.
Jared, thank you so much for coming on. I told you, this guy brings it every single time. The frankness, the candor, the introspection. He hits every single note every single time, and it's just been a pleasure talking to him. Like I said before, we got Julia Conan coming next week. We got Diljeet Taylor coming on Thursday. Four episodes from the Rambling Runner this week. We got two Rambling Runner podcasts, two Road to the Olympic Trials podcasts. In addition to that, we got the virtual race series kicking up in a few weeks. I'm really excited for that. On the Rambling Runner Run Club on Strava, we started this puppy four days ago. We have 1,200 people already on it. It is one of the biggest run clubs in the country already. And we've only been doing it for less than a week. So I'm excited for that. The 5K has almost 400 runners as I'm recording this. Nearly 400 runners have already signed up for the 5K. Special announcement on Wednesday about what we're going to be doing for that. I'm really excited to tell you about that. That's for sure. So thank you so much for rating and reviewing the show, sharing it as always. I always appreciate it. Have a wonderful day and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti, from InPost Media. Also, thank you to Metapi for the music and his song, Evolution.